You're listening to the NPO Media Podcast, produced by volunteers from the National Alliance on Mental Illness, Staten Island Chapter. This podcast provides a platform for individuals living with mental illness. For this episode, we spoke with Edie Shea, who is a pioneer in the advocacy and support movement on Staten Island. The National Alliance on Mental Illness, or NAMI, is the nation's largest grassroots organization dedicated to improving the lives of persons living with serious mental illness and their families. Founded in 1979, NAMI has become the nation's voice on mental illness. With organizations and affiliates in every state, NAMI effectively provides advocacy, research, support, and education about serious mental illness. Members of NAMI include those living with mental illness, families and friends of people living with mental illnesses, mental health providers, students, educators, law enforcement, public officials, politicians, members of faith communities, and concerned citizens. This presentation is an In Our Own Voice presentation. My name is Edith Shea. And I worked in the city for 20 years, that's New York City, as an administrative assistant. In 2000, I began doing volunteer work for NAMI. I've done outreaches to the community at health fairs. I've spoken to the public and elected officials about mental health care. And I served on the board of directors for NAMI Staten Island for six years. I was program coordinator for four years. I am also a peer-to-peer mentor and an In Our Own Voice presenter. This is that program. In 2002, I started the first support group on Staten Island for people with mental illness, and it's still going strong 15 years later. Dark Days In 1997, when I was 36, I was laid off from the job I worked for 10 years. I got a job at an accounting firm in Midtown Manhattan. Everything seemed to be going well. I made friends with my coworkers, and we got along well. Then in August of 1998, two things happened in the same week that changed my life. My friend and co-worker, Grisella, was killed in an accident while she was on vacation in Florida. She called the office one day, and I answered the phone. I told her that everyone was looking forward to her return. She laughed and joked about how we were tired of doing her job. I said, no, that's not it. Everyone really misses you. She said I was kidding her, and I said, no, really, come back safe. We miss you. She said not to worry. That was the last time I spoke to her. Shortly after her death, my childhood friend Michelle called to tell me her youngest baby, Patricia, had died. She was a little more than a year old. I went to Patty's wake and Grisella's wake. That whole week was surreal. I couldn't believe what was happening. I attended Grisella's funeral with everyone else in the office. It was in a big Roman Catholic church in Spanish Harlem. Many people came, her family, her friends, people from her neighborhood and all over, people whom she had helped in some way. After the funeral, I was in a state of shock. A co-worker said to me, you don't look well, are you okay? I said, no, I feel weird. She asked if there was anyone I could call. I said, yes, I can call my friend Robin. Robin told me to call the behavioral health hotline on my insurance card. I did, and I spoke to a psychiatric nurse. She set me up with a therapist and a psychiatrist. The appointment with the psychiatrist was the next day. Acceptance. 
My first psychiatrist was also a neurologist, and when he saw me, he took a family and personal history, he did some neurological testing, and he sent me for a blood test and MRI to rule out a physical condition like a brain tumor or thyroid condition. When he had all the results, he told me my diagnosis. When I finally heard what had troubled me for years, it made sense to me, and I went to the library to learn as much as I could, not only about my condition, but all psychiatric illnesses. Since I was 20, I had been troubled by rapid shifts and changes in mood and energy level, as well as thought patterns that seemed inspired and would lead to a burst of creativity. Other times, my thinking would seem disjointed, and in conversation, people had a tough time following my train of thought. One of my friends would point this out and say, that was a complete non sequitur. It was a relief to have an explanation for this, and I was relieved to know that there was medication and treatment for it. Treatment. My psychiatrist put me on a few medications to treat my condition. The side effects were difficult to manage. They made me sick and they numbed my emotions. When my father died in 2000, my feelings were numb. Then I spent the next year crying in bed on the weekends. I missed my parents and my old life so much. It seemed like all possibilities were closed to me. In February of 2001, my psychiatrist devised a new treatment plan. He used two new medications to help relieve my persistent sadness. Preliminary studies showed they worked together effectively to treat depression and regulate mood. I agreed to try them, and by May of 2001, I was making plans to study music again, and I was going out and socializing with friends. Best of all, the side effects were minimal. I made new friends, and I resumed my spiritual practice, which I had abandoned nine years earlier, when my mother died. My concentration at work improved, and I no longer cried in bed on the weekends. I've been on these two medications since then, and they work well for me. Coping skills. I rely on family and friends for support. They can give me a reality check when I need it, in addition to practical help. I employ cognitive behavioral and dialectical behavioral therapy techniques to deal with crises. If it's bad and I feel I can't cope anymore, I call my case management provider. They will assess if I need to go to the hospital and call an ambulance. My roommate and I are good supports for each other. I also write in my journal every day, and that can help identify problems I'm having or that may come up before I'm fully aware of them. I have an online journal on DreamWith and LiveJournal, and my friends there are supportive. Most of us have a diagnosis, and we help each other. I also recently began doing embroidery. It helps me to relax and take my mind off things that provoke stress and anxiety. I did embroidery when I was a teenager and young adult. I took it up again in the 90s, but the illness affected my concentration. I'm glad I enjoy it now. Successes, Hopes, and Dreams I'm proud of my successes, working for 34 years, maintaining friendships, getting along with my family, and reaching the age of 56. At times, I didn't think I would make it. I have also survived tough times with the help of family and friends and providers. I'm proud of the work I did as an advocate with the Staten Island Peer Advocacy Center and as a volunteer with NAMI. My hopes and dreams have changed over the years. In my youth, I wanted to have fun. In my 40s, I began my advocacy mission with NAMI. Now that I'm in my 50s, I've had to slow down because of arthritis in my knee. They don't tell you when you're young and having fun that you'll pay for it later. 
This has limited my ability to travel and walk long distances, so I'm adjusting to that change. I did the Marie process in my apartment and discovered embroidery projects I had put aside due to my illness. I would like to finish them. I would also like to learn Hardanger embroidery, which is a style of embroidery from my mother's birthplace in Norway. Goals, hopes, and dreams change and evolve as we adapt to new circumstances and learn additional information. This is an important aspect of my recovery, learning to adapt to change while maintaining my values and integrity. Edie, what advice would you give to a person who may be having troublesome symptoms and is considering whether to get professional help for the first time? Talk to their medical doctor and express to the medical doctor exactly what's going on and say precisely what's concerning them about the experiences that they're having. And hopefully the medical doctor will refer the person to a psychiatrist so they can get into treatment. You know, if they get into treatment, then the chances of them having a good recovery in terms of being able to manage their symptoms and being able to accomplish the things that they wish to accomplish in their life, such as having a job and becoming independent from one's parents and being able to support oneself in life will be easier to accomplish if you have treatment. It'll be easier to go through life if you stick to your treatment. That works for me. One of the things I've heard a few times is people that forget to take doses of medication because either they're in school or they're working or they just have a busy schedule. What advice might you give someone in that situation? One of my friends actually recommended to me that um, setting an alarm on your cell phone would be a, a way to work around that. Just to set an alarm on your cell phone when you need to take your medication. You know, like if you have a screen on your cell phone, most people do, you could just put it up to just say medication so it'll just appear when you look at the screen and that'll remind you. That's one way to go about it. The other way is what I do is I always remember to take it with a meal because I need to take my medication with food. I take it twice a day in the morning and in the evening. So when I set out my morning meal or the first meal of the day, I remember to put my medication right with it. And the same thing with my dinner. I remember to put my medication with my dinner. Whatever works best for you, because some people have those medication minders where they put the pill in for each day, you know, for each meal whenever they need to take it. I find that doesn't work for me because I find it's better to have all my medication in front of me at once. This way I know how much I have left to take and what I need to refill. And if a person is going to be out all day, there are ways to work around that as well, right? I remember reading in Patty Duke's autobiography that she used to like to use, you know, like beautiful antique pill boxes that she would take with her when she had to be out for the day. So you could do that too. When I was working, I used to use mint tins. You know, I would just stuff them with paper towels, you know, so they didn't get crushed by jingling around. And I would just put them in the mint tin. Edie, the treatment of mental illness, as with the treatment of any medical illness, Sometimes the medications can have intolerable side effects, physically and cognitively. However, we also understand that one of the most traumatic situations that can occur is for a person to be removed against their will from their home and brought to an emergency room somewhere in the interest of achieving a high quality of life 
and maintaining independence and choice, what is some advice that you can share with people? The key thing is to explore the reason why the person isn't taking the medication and to come up with a plan with the provider so that the person has input and also that, you know, the provider knows where that person is coming from and what their needs are so that those needs can be met. So obviously, you know, if somebody's ending up in the hospital, something's not working right. So you need to look at what's not working right. Is the person not taking the medication because they feel bad when they take the medication, in which case you might want to explore trying another medication or trying to offset the side effects of the medication. I remember when I was having a hard time with the two medications that I was taking, my doctor recommended that I take a dose early in the morning and then that I take another dose at 5 p.m. at night. So that worked for me because my cycle at the time was such that I would be a bit sleepy in the morning and energy would elevate during the day. And then by 5 p.m., I would start to feel very energized, extremely energized. So by 5 p.m., when I took my medication, that would bring me down a bit so that I would be able to go home and do what I needed and focus on what I needed to do at home and then be able to go to sleep at night because by that time I would have like wound down to the point where I would be able to sleep. It depends, obviously, on what kind of job you have or what kind of lifestyle you have, you know, what your schedule is like. Something as simple as an adjustment in the time of the dosages might help. In the case of somebody who, you know, they feel so much better without the medication and you know, they have the elevated mood and uh, they start feeling really, really great. And then they think that they don't need to take the medication and then they end up in the hospital. I understand the need to feel good because, you know, especially if you have a mood disorder where you have deep, deep, deep depressions and high moods, the deep depression can feel so bad that by the time the high mood comes around, you're like, go for it, you know? But you have to realize that that is not going to work in the long run. You may have a lot of energy, you may be getting a lot of things accomplished, but in the long term, you're going to run out of that energy. You know, every up has a down. That's the nature of gravity. It's the nature of human biology. It's the way we work. So I would suggest taking a look at what the consequences are of, you know, sticking with that high mood and, you know, what follows afterwards. I mean, if you find that you're having inappropriate sexual relationships or if you're, you know, you're getting into a lot of arguments with people, if suddenly your relationships are fraying, then you might want to start to look at whether this is a good decision for you and whether it's something, a behavior that you should continue if that's really working for you. So it requires some exploration on your part and to be honest with yourself. You know, and that can be hard because you need a provider that's going to support you in that and you also need to have people around you who are going to support you in that. Edie, I wonder if you could share for the folks listening to the podcast your views about the value of creative outlets. 
I feel that it's very important, not just for people with mental health issues, but for basically every single human, you know, because being creative is just an essential part of life. It, it's really central to living. I mean, even just to like, you know, make a shopping list, you have to be creative and you have to, you know, everybody comes up with their own way of doing their shopping list. So something as simple as that, you can be creative with it. But I find that the creative outlets that work for me are journal writing, and uh, the embroidery, as I mentioned, and also music, just listening to music. I used to play violin. I also used to play piano, and I also used to play guitar. I don't do any of that anymore because I have my psychological issues with music, but um, it helps me really to listen to it, and I find that when I listen to music, it enables me to connect with a deeper part of myself and also relax and feel better to take me out of myself and make me think about other things, you know, other than whatever I'm going through. Paradoxically, also, if you listen to certain types of music, it can really bring you down and make you focus on your problems. So you really have to learn how to use music to help you or, you know, even if, you know, sometimes you need to feel depressed and if you need to feel angry, sometimes the music helps you along and get it out of your system in a way that's like, you know, harmless. One of the other things that I do is journal writing. And with journal writing, as I mentioned, I have an online community of friends. You know, we share each other's journals and we comment on each other's journals. And uh, you have to be comfortable with that. You have to be comfortable with sharing that part of yourself with a wider audience. But actually, all of us are really supportive of each other. I have yet to see anybody be really nasty to anyone. That's been helpful for me, too. The way that I started writing journals was my sister gave me one of those um, one-year diary books when I was like nine years old. So I've been writing a journal pretty much since I was nine. I lost my journals from nine to like 19, 20, something like that. But I've been writing a paper journal since then, and I still keep a paper journal for, you know, more intimate thoughts or things that I think nobody else will find interesting, like what I need to do, you know, project-wise or, you know, just random stuff that we all have to work out during the course of the day. I just find that that's very helpful. Thank you for participating in this episode of the NPO Media Podcast. And at this point, I want to ask if you have any closing thoughts for our listening audience. Have a great day. Have a great life. Um, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. I hope you learned something. I hope that I made you think or that Pete made you think and that um, everything goes well for you. Thank you.